Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. This year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and Peter Stanford has written a new appraisal of the man who started it all. It's called Martin Luther, Catholic Dissident, published by Hodder. Peter has also written in our Easter issue about the intriguing similarities between Martin Luther and President Trump. I hope you enjoy this extended interview. Our regular team will be back next week to discuss all the latest news. Maybe I can start by asking about the title Martin Luther Catholic Dissident. Was that a conscious choice of yours to emphasise that Luther was indeed a Catholic? Absolutely. I mean, there's always a conscious choice in, in, uh, in titles of books anyway to try and give people a hint of what it might be about. And uh, they sometimes say that apart from Jesus, there have been more books written about Martin Luther than anyone else. Um, so I was, <laughs> it was a crowded field, and this is the 500th anniversary, so an even more crowded field. And I suppose in one sense I was trying to, to say to people, this is different. Um, I almost want to say a book about Martin Luther that you might enjoy reading, because most books about Martin Luther um, tend to be either rather academic or rather um, hagiography, really. So uh, there were all those reasons for it. But yes, you're absolutely right. So Martin Luther was born a Catholic, was baptised a Catholic, was raised a Catholic, was an Augustinian friar, not a monk. He absolutely wasn't a monk. He was a friar uh, with, with, with the Catholics, as it were. And, you know, it's pretty clear, if you look into it, Martin Luther uh, thought on his deathbed that he was a Catholic, um, probably rather arrogantly, um, but he felt that, in a way, he'd laid out a series of reforms for the Catholic Church, and it was just a matter of time before they saw the wisdom of what he was suggesting. Um, I do think he was slightly hoping they would come 90% of the way and he would only have to go 10% back. Uh, to meet them and they showed no instinct to do that but I think in trying to understand where he comes from you have to understand that this is this is a sort of Catholic reform movement this is someone who wanted to reform the Catholic Church so in that sense he was the accidental reformer. So you were trying to make Luther more accessible and interesting to the general audience? Well I think there, I think there are several problems with Luther and, and in a way this is what made me write the book because I kept thinking I ought to know more about Luther, I ought to know more about Luther and you go, oh Luther. Um, one of the problems is the only picture we ever see of him are these pictures that Lucas Cranach painted, Lucas Cranach mm. the court painter of the Elector of Saxony, Wittenberg where Luther taught where he nailed his 95 theses or didn't but um, anyway the, 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 the home of the 95 theses um, was where Cranach operated and all the Cranach posters or pictures that become posters become book covers just make him look so dark and forbidding and jowly and cross and those beady little eyes and, and the kind of sort of black melancholy around him and then if you think of the things that people know about him um, uh, he talks about the devil all the time, so people think that makes him really weird and has nothing to do with, with the age that we live in. But of course, you know, he was a man of his times, of late medieval Europe. Everybody talked about the devil. Whenever you thought about misfortunes in your life, you put them down to the devil. So, but that, that, I think that is an obstacle. Um, he believed, of course, that the devil um, uh, uh, possessed his bowels, so he went on a great deal about his constipation, uh, which makes people think he's a bit, you know, creepy and weird. I think people also think that the Reformation was a, um, a kind of moment where Christianity fragmented 
And given that we live in relatively uh, secular, sceptical, scientific times, fragmentations in Christianity are really dull, and Christianity itself really doesn't interest a lot of people. They think, oh, Luther over there. Whereas, of course, Luther was one of the, the makers of modern Europe, which is what the book says. And I suppose the final thing that puts people off Luther, and I've had this quite a lot when the books come out where I've been trying to make a case for how interesting Luther is, people keep saying, oh, but he was anti-Semitic. You know, we shouldn't think about this man, we shouldn't write about him because he was anti-Semitic. And yes, he was anti-Semitic, and I make no apologies at all, and anti-Semitism is a terrible thing and should be counted at all times, and you know, and we, we see it rising slightly in our own age. So no excuses at all for that. But the whole point of history is that there is a context to things. Mm. First thing, Luther probably never met a Jew in his life. Wittenberg wasn't a town that had a Jewish ghetto. Jews were banned from Wittenberg and many of the towns around. There's no evidence he ever met someone who was Jewish. Um, in 1522, when he wrote about marriage, he wrote one of his tracts about marriage, and he wanted to kind of free up marriage from sort of church regulation. And he said, you should marry whoever you want to do. You don't have to marry another Catholic. You could marry a Jew. You could marry a Muslim. And he says rather positive things about Jews. And so he was enlightened by the standards of the time. At the very end of his life... Uh, 1538 I think it is the Jews and their lies um, which is where he says all these revolting appalling things uh, about the Jews and I just think again there is a context that there's a context that you know if you're not going to be interested in Luther uh, because he said anti-semitic things you can virtually wipe out everybody from the 16th century because they all Mm -hmm. did frankly Um, even Erasmus the sainted Erasmus Um, and the second thing Um, to to bear in mind is there is a reason why he moves from this enlightened figure of the 1520s to this rather um, grumpy, growly man late in life. And it's because Luther felt that he was driven by God and that God was directing him. He describes himself at one stage as like a horse with blinkers on as you're running down a course. You can only go on one track. So God was driving him. And he absolutely believed that... um, that people would hear his message and come to come to Christianity, come to hit this reformed form of, of uh, Catholicism he's putting up. And of course the Jews didn't. So he was a bit disappointed with them, so he lashed out. He was a man who tended to write when he was angry. So not excusing his anti-Semitism at all, but there's a context for it. But it is, I think, anti-Semitism that puts people off him as well. So there are lots of reasons why people don't go. And I suppose the final reason to put on that very long list is that the, a lot of the books that have been written about him in the past are, it sounds awful to say this, but I mean, they are just a bit difficult and dull. I mean, uh, frankly, we don't live in a, in a theologically literate age anymore. Most people don't even go inside churches anymore. So you start saying, oh, well, the big thing about Luther was justification by faith alone. They go, oh, justification, that's when you make an excuse for something, isn't it? People just don't understand that language. And one of the interesting things when I was writing the book was my editor kept saying to me all the time when I'd write about his ideas on the sacraments or the mass, she'd say, you just have to tell people what a sacrament is. People don't know what it is. Tell them what the mass is. Don't just say, you know, he had different ideas about the Eucharist. Tell us what the Eucharist is. People don't know anymore. And so I think there is a tendency often in books around this subject to exclude all but the people who know about it already. And I suppose the thing I've always tried to do in all my books around religious subjects is broaden them out to talk about the society, to talk about the culture, to talk about the history, but to do it in language that everybody understands, whether they've set foot in a church once in their life or a million times. I mean, you write that Luther's tale is now too often sidelined, but he was one of those key individuals who explains why the world is as it is, as it is now. His biography is not then just for believers. 
I mean, how does he explain the world as it is now? Um, well, two, two, two main ways. The first is that what Luther did was he broke the stranglehold of the medieval Catholic Church, um, which, which uh, you know, had been going for a thousand years, this stranglehold over European thought and culture and politics and everything. And every time people had cropped up beforehand, because the important thing, there's nothing that Luther said that people hadn't said beforehand. Um, whenever people had cropped up and said some of those things beforehand, uh, the Catholic Church had put them to death. Um, so in a sense, it was maintaining its stranglehold. And again, you'll find people who say, oh, well, the Reformation would have happened anyway. And perhaps it would, and, you know, probably would have happened. Something had to give. Um, but you can't take away from Luther that he did that. So first of all, he transformed Europe. I mean, here we are in England. We are only in the England that we're in. This is the Church Times. This is the Church of England. It wouldn't exist. Luther made the... Obviously, Henry VIII wasn't a Lutheran, um, despised Luther in many ways, but he created the circumstances in which that was possible. Um, Luther did for Henry VIII. So, changed Europe. Really, really important. You can make us a modern Europe. Luther absolutely has to be up there in the top ten. But more importantly, I think, with Luther as well. So, Luther's key idea, or one of his key ideas, um, uh, uh, sola scripturum, only by scripture, that he said that... You know, salvation was achieved um, by faith, not by doing good works. He didn't have a problem with good works, but he said you, you had to do them for their own sake, not because you thought they got your place in heaven. But what he said was at, at the moment of our deaths, we stand before God awaiting his judgment with only the Bible to sort of protect us in our nakedness in a way. And so what he was talking about was he wanted people to read the scriptures, read the gospels in particular, translated the Bible into German, made people, gave people the word of God as opposed to experts telling them what it said. Um, so he believed that, that you had to read the scriptures and make what you want of them. He didn't want the Pope telling you this is what this means. And that was enormously liberating, enormously positive, but... What it, what it then means is, well, first of all, you have this kind of fragmentation of the, of the reform movement of, of Protestantism as it became. It fragments because you take away the authority of the church, and that's something all churches continue to, uh, to struggle with. Um, but more significantly, in terms of wider European culture, what Luther was saying was you read the scripture and you examine it um, in freedom... Uh, by your conscience and you make your own mind up about it. It's about the individual, not the collective. It's about human liberty. It's about uh, conscience. It's about freedom of access to the word. And a, a very clear line leads on from that breakthrough that he made to the 17th and the 18th century Enlightenment, which was all about, you know, uh, uh, your freedom to read and to think whatever you wanted to think and ultimately leads on to the 20th and 21st century where we get ideas of human rights so the Europe that we live in now which puts the rights of the individual the freedoms of the individual are human rights at the very top of the tree is absolutely a creation of Martin Luther not directly there's lots of things he wouldn't like about it because of course one of the things that happens when you read the scriptures you might, just, you might decide they're a pile of piffle and you want nothing to do with them and that isn't what he envisaged so you can't say that he wanted us to have human rights I don't think he particularly did and couldn't really imagine it but he certainly what he did created the Europe in which we now live. Was there an irony in the way that Luther and as the as his ideas spread and the reformation got going he was issuing a lot of teaching documents explaining what the bible meant to people and he was issuing rules about worship or guidance about how worship should be done was he in some ways becoming a sort of pope? 
Um, he did sort of become a pope, didn't he? And obviously that's one of the practical things because you know Luther's life splits quite neatly into different portions. But one way of looking at it is um, you get to the Diet of Worms in 1521 where he'd already been excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Very important to remember excommunication is not the final word in terms of Catholicism. You remain a Catholic by your baptism. And even today, the Catholic Church says that um, excommunication is a medicinal, is the word they use, a medicinal uh, a, a process, and it's meant to bring you back into the fold. Anyway, 1521, he's been excommunicated, Diet of Worms, princes, Holy Roman Emperor, clergy, cardinals, archbishops, all there, and they want to condemn him as a heretic, um, which, would have, uh, which would have caused him to be put to death, so they would have silenced him like they silenced other people. And Luther escapes that. They don't. They, the political circumstances are such that they cannot do what they would want to do with him. He goes to Wartburg Castle for about 10 months and then comes back to Wittenberg. And in, in that sense, in, in Saxony and some parts of Germany, he is a free man. And he starts grappling with the problem that he's told everyone they should read the scripture and think what they want. And a terrible free-for-all is going on there. So, you know, no, no, everyone has a different idea about what you should do. So what he starts doing is, you're right, he gives guidance and he starts putting together the sort of blueprint, not of a separate church, but of a church within a church, a, a sort of um, a kind of reform wing of Catholicism and the hope they get there. But yes, he has to start telling people what to do. Um, he, he's, you know, there are, there, are, uh, there are moments when he actually chucks people out. There was one particular a character in Wittenberg whose name escapes me just at this moment, who he took grave exception to. So he chucked him out and said, you can't come to our church anymore. So as good as excommunicated him. So he starts doing those things. He starts doing it. And of course, it is, it's the dilemma, really, isn't it? It is the dilemma. Tell people to follow their freedom and their, and their individuality. And we'll all think very different things. We'll all become a church of one. Um, and he wanted there to be a church institution. So actually, here we are in the 21st century, and it seems to me that if you line your churches up on a spectrum, the one that is cosiest and closest to Catholicism, or Roman Catholicism, my own form of Catholicism, um, is, uh, is Lutheranism. I mean, I went to lots of Lutheran <laughs> services when I was doing this, and I was really lost to know the difference, apart from uh, the, the, uh, the minister's wife was often sitting in the front row, but we have a bit of that in the Catholic Church now as well. You, the book really brings out how crucial the printing press was in disseminating Luther's ideas. Um, do you think to some extent he was someone who embraced technology and were he alive today, would he, would he embrace social media? Would he be a prolific tweeter? There's a bit of the Donald Trump about, um, about uh, Martin Luther, I would say. So, in what way? Uh, well, uh, so you're right, the printing presses. So Gutenberg's uh, printing presses ended the 15th century. Uh, Luther, when he um, writes the 95 Theses, very quickly afterwards uh, gives them to a local printer who starts circulating them. They did it in several really interesting ways. They always written in German. Uh, he wanted it to be used. He used street language. Um, he has a reputation for being very crude in his language, and he can be. Um, he can also be rather poetic, if anyone remembers those hymns, you know, Mighty Fortress is My God. Um, so he did that. But also what they did when they were printing them, they'd be boiled down versions of what he'd said. And for, because of age of widespread illiteracy, there would be woodcuts in there as well um, uh, from Lucas Cranach's studio. So it was all about getting his message out there by alternative channels, not through the establishment church channels. And so it was a kind of social media. And th those messages, the 95 Theses, uh, the Sermon on Grace that comes afterwards, they go viral by today's terms. The parallels with Donald Trump, I think, are, are A, that idea of using the um, 
using the sort of alternative channels to what exists already to get your message out there to prompt a populist movement mm. so he touches what luther does is he reaches out to a, a core of discontent in germany he's not interested in the kind of governing classes he's not interested in the princes and the bishops in some ways he's appealing most of all to the kind of rural and the urban poor who are very socially discontented economically discontented this is the birth of capitalism going on there they feel the church is taking too much of their money treating them badly he reaches out so that it's like it's like trump going out to the rust belt and the other thing which is so well the intemperate language that he uses all the time so you know when he gets the bull of excommunication from the pope I think most of us, or certainly I, if I got a bull of excommunication, please God no, but if I got one, I would read it, I'd think very carefully about it, I might pray about it, I might go and talk to my priest about it. Luther almost immediately sent out a tract saying against the, um, what is it, the execrable bull of the Antichrist. I mean, it's like Trump sitting there at night watching Meryl Streep at the uh, Golden Globes and saying she's an overrated actress on his Twitter feed. And Luther says, actually, that he, um, that he writes when he's angry. So he's not sort of someone, that thing, you know, we're all told to do. If we write an email in anger, we're meant to leave it on our computer overnight, get up the next morning, think about it and send it out. Donald Trump doesn't do it. Luther doesn't do it either. There is, there is that sense there in them as well. So a bit, a bit of that going on. I mean, obviously, I think Luther was a better man than Donald Trump, but we don't need to go there. <laughs> Had his own hair as well. <laughs> and the book punctures some myths about Luther. Um, which, such, is, which is a shame sometimes because some of the myths are good I mean one of the key ones being whether he actually nailed the 95 theses to the door at he didn't I mean, I'm afraid sorry well it's just not true I mean I'm not it's not it's not there so one of the great things about Martin Luther is um, 121 volumes of his writings his diaries his letters his texts and then these things at the end of his life when he would talk to uh, around his dinner table every night called the table talks nowhere 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 in those 121 volumes does he mention nailing anything he talks about sending it to his archbishop so the story the first time you read that story is after his death and people are trying to build a myth around him so I mean I think it's dead from that point of view but just think about the practicalities of it another of the problems with language with Luther 95 theses we think oh thesis oh my son's writing a thesis and that's 10,000 words long so he wrote 10,000 words time 95,000 words not true um, theses were sort of debating points but they're all about two or three sentences long um, and 95 times two or three sentences so I was never very good at maths I'm not quite sure what the number is but it's, it's nearly 300 and let's call it nearly 300 think about it on a piece of paper on a church door we're not thinking of a petition put on the church door saying we would like father to um, take longer over the sermon or take less time over the sermon sign your names underneath we're talking about 300 sentences I mean it's like hanging a piece of wallpaper on the door it's 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 just not possible even today in Wittenberg, on the, it was the Castle Church in Wittenberg, he did it. They've tried to, in these new doors they put there, they've tried to inscribe the 95 articles on them. And obviously, I now have glasses. But even so, it is pretty hard to read them, even with my very focals on as I'm going down them. They scarcely all fit there. It's just not possible. And Luther saying, here I stand at the, the Diet of Worms? It's a great phrase. There wasn't it? one moment, you think, when no, he actually said that. It's, no, he, he sort of said it. I mean, in a kind of, it's in a summarising way. I think he probably said each of the individual words at one stage, but there wasn't a moment when he said, here I stand, I can do no other. It's one of those phrases that sounds very good and actually, you know, resonates down the ages, going, coming back to the making of modern Europe, the primacy of conscience, here I stand, I can do no other. It's also his courage which is 
extraordinary. But again, if you look through the documents, he gives various different accounts of what he said. And often he says things like stand and do no other, but he doesn't say them all together in one place. So it's more true than the nailing, but, um, but it's not absolutely true, which is a shame. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of the dilemmas in writing about him, because it's very tempting to go um, with these sort of anecdotes. I think one of the ways in which famous people often or people who want to be famous, possibly, um, shape their life is around a series of anecdotes. A few years ago, I wrote a biography of Lord Longford, the prison reformer. And actually, when you looked into his life, he was a very, very funny man, a very good public speaker. He, he turned his entire life into a series of really funny stories, but actually you just had to pick away at the stories to get to the truth. And I think that's one of the, thing, one of the things that a biographer has to do, to, uh, to pick away at the stories and find out if they're true or not, or what really happened. You talk about Luther's relationship with his parents, in particular his father, and how much do you buy into the kind of psychoanalytic interpretations that Luther was acting out a sort of fight with Rome, which was also a battle with his father and how his father never quite approved of his this was the, um, this was the uh, This was the line of a, a very famous uh, psychoanalyst called Eric Erickson in the late 1950s. Um, he published a book called Young Man Luther, uh, which basically said that the Reformation was caused because Luther wanted to get back at his dad, who wasn't very nice to him. And, um, and he saw an image of his dad in the Pope and in the patriarchal Catholic Church. Um, and then there was the John Osborne play that follows that very closely with Albert Finney in the West End in the early 1960s. And then there was a film of it as well with Judy Dench, actually, as um, as Katerina von Bora, Luther's uh, wife, ex-nan wife later on. Um, that... The, the, I mean, clearly there was disappointment between Luther and his father. Um, Luther's father wanted him to be a uh, lawyer. He wanted him to be, uh, you know, he he was a man of modest means, uh, Mr. Luther, senior, and he wanted his son to get on in the world. So he was cross when he went off to be a friar. That is certainly true. Um, It is absolutely true that if you look at Luther's life, um, throughout his life, he has periodic moments of elation and collapses. Um, later in life, he, he keeps referring to them as spiritual collapses, but they're, you know, they, they bear all the hallmarks of, um, of sort of episodes of kind of mania, whether high or low. And I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a psychiatrist, so it, is Ill, it ill behoves me to diagnose anybody with anything. But I think anyone with some knowledge of bipolar would look at Luther and think, there's something going on there that's, that's a little bit familiar. And we use the word bipolar far too often now. Now, but there's a bit of that going on there. So um, I think you can over-psychoanalyse Luther and you can fit everything into very neat patterns. But equally, you have to uh, take account of the fact that he was a man of very volatile emotions. His mother obviously was a very pious woman, uh, very uh, God-fearing um, and I think that certainly had a, um, an impact on him. Luther was quite a volatile personality. And he struggled much more with that idea. He wanted it really badly. And, um, and so, you know, when he was in the monastery, so he went into the Augustinian cloister, is the right word, although it always makes it sound a bit like a convent. I went into the Augustinian cloister in 1505. And then it was 1517 that in many ways he had his great breakthrough about justification by faith alone. Um, so those 12 years were years of great struggle. He did all the right things, constantly going to confession, doing all his duties, praying, keeping the hour, the monastic hours, 
doing all of those things and it got him nowhere. And that was really what turned him to reading the scriptures. So out of his personal struggle, he called it Anfektung, which is one of those German words that doesn't really have an English equivalent. So it's sort of struggle and depression and darkness, but it also has this idea of a kind of physical struggle almost in there. And out of that came him reading the, the Gospels in particular and then the letters of St. Paul. And out of that came his breakthrough. And once he'd had his breakthrough that he understood God's mercy, he understood God's justice, that's when he starts thinking God is around him. So out of a private struggle, we get a public reformation that changes Europe. You mentioned towards the end of the book that Catholicism has since embraced many of Luther's reforms. It took us a while, obviously. <laughs> to centuries rather than... 450 years. years. I, mean, I think we can date yeah. it pretty exactly. So, yes. So Luther dies 1546. A Council of Trent is already meeting at that stage. Uh, and in the beginning of the 1560s, it launches the Counter-Reformation. But actually, if you look... I mean, it sort of takes on board what Luther said, because it said priests had to be trained better. You couldn't have these sort of... You know, you needed more literate, more uh, theologically trained uh, priests and one of Luther's great thing was that the priest should be able to preach and and, um, and and guide his people but they didn't take much of many of his other things on so you really have to so you fast forward 100 years of warfare follow his um, uh, his death including the 30 years war between Protestants and Catholics for other reasons as well but, um, and then um, it's really only in the 1960s so the great reforming Second Vatican Council of the Catholic Church 1962 to 1965 it starts uh, taking on board. So I can remember really clearly, because I'm old enough, in 1969, as a very small boy, just let's be really clear, uh, standing in my local Catholic church, and we suddenly got Mass in the vernacular. We started saying Mass in English. Uh, that's Luther had been doing that 450 years beforehand. We both got, we all got the bread and wine at communion. We hadn't until 1969. That's Luther again. Luther said, because in the past, uh, the bread and wine in Catholicism was... Um, uh, restricted to the clergy because they were a better class of people than the rest of us. But the most important thing, if you read the Vatican II documents, which obviously I didn't do when I was a small boy in the pews, but I've done it since, um, Lumen Gentium, um, the great sort of constitution of the church in the modern world of the Second Vatican Council, just lifts directly a phrase of Luther's where he, in trying to flatten that divide between the clergy and the laity, he says that we are all priests and there is a priesthood of baptised believers. It's there. It's there in the Second Vatican Council documents. The Catholic Church finally got it. Uh, they finally agreed. And so the Second Vatican Council starts this process in 1969 of Catholic Lutheran dialogue. 1999, they sign a joint doc declaration where they say the theological dispute is over. Now, you could say, um, well, Luther agreed with a married clergy, so where's that? Um, Pope Francis said only a couple of weeks ago he quite liked married clergy. We have married clergy here. We have former readers, perhaps current readers of the Church Times who are married Anglican vicars who are now Catholic priests. So that is happening. We still have seven sacraments and Lutherans still have two. But, you know, there's an argument about what makes a sacrament. So we're getting there. We're getting there slowly but surely. Papal authority, obviously, is a bit of a tricky one. But we've got a Pope who's keen to devolve his authority. It's corruption in the Vatican. The other thing that, that, that Luther hated. What's Pope Francis doing? I mean, Martin Luther, were he alive today, would be standing there clapping, saying, I'm really happy being a Catholic. And I suppose that was the other reason I called a Catholic dissident. I think he, if he was alive today, he would be a Catholic. Martin Luther, Catholic Dissident by Peter Stamford is available to buy from the Church House Bookshop for the reduced price of £16. See you next week.